a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 107 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media platform. It's how the show grows, and I certainly appreciate any retweets or shares at the conclusion of your listening experience. This is the part where I let you know that the Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Shold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at sholdmediagroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D mediagroup.com. After an episode on the road, the Say the Damn Score podcast studio has moved from the Starbucks across from the Target Center back to my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. And this week we connect with Pat Hughes, the radio voice of the Chicago Cubs. Often when I have a guest on this show, especially when they're radio guys, it's hard to be familiar with their work. You can listen to them on TuneIn or on Sirius. There's always ways to do it, but... If it's not your local team or your local broadcast, you really have to go out of your way to specifically tune in, and I do do that pretty frequently, but usually you're just getting a small sample, an inning here, an inning there. You're not really getting to experience the connection that each broadcaster has with their fan base. With Pat Hughes, that's not the case for me, and it's kind of odd because I've never lived anywhere near Chicago. For two seasons, I worked for KVHT, KVTK in Yankton, South Dakota, and somewhat randomly, they were a Cubs affiliate in Yankton, South Dakota, which is in the southeast corner just on the Nebraska border. Again, nowhere near Chicago, but they were a Cubs affiliate. As a sales guy at that station, I wasn't a big fan of the Cubs broadcast because Selling sponsorships for a Chicago team in South Dakota was difficult, but any time I turned on the game, I loved every second of it because, in my opinion, Pat Hughes is one of, if not the most entertaining play-by-play broadcaster in any sport. He made my long commutes from small town to small town, uh, pitching sales sponsorships in South Dakota more manageable, and I certainly appreciate him for that. Before we get to the actual interview, this is the first podcast released in 2020, and it was recorded the day after Christmas, so it's not technically the first one recorded in the new year, but is the first one released. So if you're listening to this on time, Happy New Year. I hope that everything this year goes well for you, as well as I hope the same thing for myself. So 
Uh, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. It's the listeners that make this possible. And I'm still always shocked that, frankly, anybody cares what I have to say. But <laughs> I'm still very appreciative from everyone for tuning in uh, the last four plus years and beyond. And if you're listening in the future, you know what? Happy whatever day it is. I used that same joke last episode, and I'm going to do it one more time because it's true. I hope you're having a great day right now, wherever and whenever you're listening. Anyways, after all that, it was a real honor to get Pat Hughes on the podcast. And without further ado, Pat, welcome to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Happy to be with you, Logan. Let's have some fun here in the next few minutes. Always want to have some fun. And I want to start this way back early in your life when you were making the decision to become a sportscaster. I read that you started at about 19 uh, going down that path, but you grew up in the Bay Area where there were a lot of legendary broadcasters, uh, Lon Simmons, Bill King, a lot of people who would go on to be in the various Hall of Fames throughout the industry. How much did having those voices in your formative years uh, influence you becoming a broadcaster and the broadcaster you are specifically? I, I think quite a bit. Um, also, Russ Hodges uh, you mentioned Lon Simmons. Russ and Lon were legends in the Bay Area. The Giants moved there in 1958. I was born in 1955. So from the time I can remember, their voices were on the radio, in the car, uh, in the stereo, in the living room. They were at the Little League Diamond with a transistor radio. So Russ and Lon were hugely popular. And the Giants of that time uh, the 1960s in particular, the Giants were a great team, uh, just loaded with stars. Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, Gaylord Perry. Now, you mentioned, Logan, I'm the voice of the Chicago Cubs, and I, I like to tell the story that if you would see a doubleheader at Candlestick Park in about 1966, you had a chance to see nine guys in one day that would go on to baseball's Hall of Fame. The five that I just mentioned for the Giants and the four for the Cubs would be Ron Santo, my partner for 15 years on Cubs Radio, Billy Williams, the great Ernie Banks, and Ferguson Jenkins. So, I mean, it's, it's no wonder that I fell in love with baseball at a very, very young age. And, and um, you know, I was lucky enough to be on some really good youth baseball teams. We won the city of San Jose championship when I was 12. I played shortstop and I hit cleanup and, and, uh, then in pony league, we were a champion. And in Colt league, I was lucky enough to be on the Colt league all-star team that played in Lafayette, Indiana. So it was, it was just a lot of fun. And, um, I've, I've been so lucky to make a living in sports because, um, it's a fun thing for me to to go to a ball game or to go to a ballpark, and it still is to this day. What aspect of your play-by-play -play now do you listen back and say, you know what, I think that was influenced by those greats in your formative times? You know, I don't know if I do that on specific calls because I, I pride myself, as most of us do if they've done it for 30 or 40 years as I have, uh, you, you don't really think about your calls being influenced by any other one guy. I like to joke and say that uh, I learned from a lot of people, and if you copy from one person, Logan, they call it plagiarism. 
But if you copy from a lot of people, they call it research. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I look at it. I, I feel like I've learned and I still learn to this day when I flip on the radio. I might get an idea of a better way to call something or a better way to describe something or to use a different adjective. Uh, words are all we have as, as radio broadcasters or podcasters like yourself. And I've made it a point to learn as many words as possible. I think part of the art of broadcasting is changing and varying uh, the way that you say the same thing. You don't just say ground ball to shortstop, scooped up by Smith, throws to first, out number one. You know, you bouncer to short, short hops, uh, short hops it, plants the feet, makes the throw, gets him. Or here's a, here's a chopper to a charging shortstop Davis, gloves it, makes a running sidearm throw to first in time. You know, you try to keep it different, and uh, that's, that's all a part of, of, you know, your training. But I don't really think that I specifically think these days when I make a call, I don't think back and say, gee, I probably got that from Vin Scully, or gee, that was probably a Bill King idea that I pulled out of the uh, – out of the woodwork. I, I don't I don't really think I do that. What is your routine as far as listening and learning and doing as you call the research on on becoming a better broadcaster? Even at you're obviously a long way up on the ladder, you have one of the best jobs in the business, but it sounds like you still specifically try to get better. Do you have a routine or is it just whenever you have time? Well, uh, it's whenever I have time, and things get very, very hectic during the season. We have the, the you're right, we do have uh, some of the best jobs in Western civilization, I think. Uh, being a baseball announcer is a tremendous way to make a living. Um, however, it, the, the drawback is you don't get much time off once the season starts. You are married to the schedule. You travel like a lunatic from coast to coast. You get in at all hours of the day and night. There must be eight to ten nights every year that every big league team stumbles into a new hotel lobby at about 4.30 in the morning, minimum 10. If you play postseason, it's more like 20 times that'll happen. Um, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that you don't really have a lot of free time to devote to your um you know, your research, as I called it, you, because you're preparing for games, you're traveling, you're performing, uh, you're trying to get your workouts in, and you're trying to get your rest. So I, I don't really have uh, any specific uh, routine. I just, I try to read as much as I can every day, uh, and not just about baseball. I want to read about entertainment and uh, politics and news and know what's going on in the world. Not that I'll be talking about it necessarily on the air. I just want to know it because I feel like I should as a citizen. Um, but what I, what I try to do every day, like when I'm on the road, I have a red pen. I read the newspaper. If there's something in there that's uh, either noteworthy or humorous that I might want to discuss with my great partner, Ron Coomer, on that day's Cubs broadcast, I'll circle it and I'll put a little note there. And, and you know, Coomer, um, you know, there might have been an odd play or an unusual injury or just uh, somebody made a funny statement uh, or somebody made a mistake. Uh, baseball players always make mistakes. They forget how many outs there are, which is always funny unless it happens to you. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't really uh, have one specific routine. I think it's a it's an ongoing thing 
Um, a baseball season is kind of a continuum of ball games where one game affects tomorrow and that one will affect the one two days from now and so on and so on. Um, it's a very unique thing. It's a daily activity. It's not like once a week in football or three to four times a week in basketball and hockey. You are there sometimes 28 out of 29 days um, with the only one day being a travel day. It's, it's a grinding schedule. Uh, I enjoy it. I uh, have gotten used to it. But um, as far as doing a lot of extra uh, research during the season, there's just simply not enough time. A lot of the broadcasters I talk to, I don't really have a big uh, knowledge of their actual sound. But I actually used to work for one of the few Cubs affiliates in South Dakota, and I got to listen to you guys all the time. And one of the things I was always impressed with the way you do things is the conversationalness and the way you mix in uh, politics and music and pop culture in a way that you don't hear a lot of baseball guys able to do. Do you? You talked about your reading and your preparation. Do you? go into a game with an idea of something that you want to talk about if the game organically allows you, or do you just kind of figure it out on the fly, hey, we're having a conversation? I think both. I think sometimes there there might be something uh, that, uh, that you experienced earlier that day, either at lunch or when you were trying to order something on the telephone and uh, you got uh, into a voicemail maze and it, 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 something funny happened or um, or you ate something or I, I remember this past September we were in San Diego. Um, I was in Starbucks getting coffee and this guy in front of me had a bulldog with him in Starbucks. And that wasn't the funny thing. The funny thing was that his name was Dave. The guy says, Okay, Dave, let's go. Come on, boy. Let's go. <laughs> and it hit me. I thought, Dave, Dave is the name of your neighbor. Dave is the name of your coworker. Dave is not a dog's name. <laughs> so we did like eight or 10 minutes on that. And um, yeah, we, we also talked about um, Ted Williams being in San Diego, that, that same game. This just This is just coming to mind at this point, Logan. So thanks for bringing it up. Ted is the one of the great hitters of all time. But he has said, and you've probably heard this if you're a, a baseball aficionado at all, Ted Williams has said that hitting a baseball is the most difficult thing to do in all of sports. Well, I, 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 I just said, well, it is certainly difficult, especially at the big league level. But the fact that people call Ted the greatest hitter of all time, what Ted was kind of saying was that He's saying, I, Ted Williams, am the greatest athlete of all time. So what I brought up was, I said, I wonder if Ted Williams has ever pole vaulted. And we discussed that for a while. Um, and I said, has he ever performed uh, the gymnastics routine of the rings, like you see in the Olympics, where guys uh, have just the rings and they're up in the air? and they're... Uh, That, to me, looks extremely difficult more so perhaps even than hitting a fastball. But the pole vaulting was the one that we, we uh, had about five minutes of fun with. You know, where it began, it actually began, and, and Zach Zaidman, our great third man in the booth, he actually looked up the history of pole vaulting. It was not a sport until the, the medieval times when uh, there were guys trying to jump over castle walls. 
So they took these big poles, these bamboo poles, planted themselves and tried to catapult themselves <laughs> over the castle wall to get into the king's area or to get into an area where they could do battle efficiently. And to me, that's interesting. It's funny. And um, we don't do it if a game is on the line. If, if it's three to two and it's the eighth inning, we're talking baseball. We're talking uh, available pinch hitters and pitchers in the bullpen. And uh, what is the pitcher going to do in this spot? And I talked to Ron Coomer. What's the, what's the batter thinking? What's he trying to do here? What kind of a pitch is he looking for? But if it's 11-2, to two, Logan, and it's in the eighth inning, that's a completely different story. And, and we go to what my old basketball partner, Al McGuire, called Plan B. You've been the broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs since 1996. And while they've been really good the last couple of years, including obviously the World Series in 2016, there were a lot of years where the Cubs weren't very good. Did the fact that you had a lot of uncompetitive games, how did that influence your storytelling and your improvement in that part of the broadcast spectrum? Well, I, that's a good question. I think that um, really you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep your audience. You want your audience to listen, whether it's a close game, a good game, or a bad game. And uh, that's the whole idea. I mean, sponsors are paying a lot of money in Chicago to have their commercials uh, heard and, uh, they're paying us a good salary to broadcast. And I, I just try to keep my audience. So that's, that's, uh, uppermost in my mind. Um, we try to do a lot of baseball history, this date in baseball history. I love that, uh, topic. And I have a whole file every single day of the baseball season. I've got, uh, 10, 12 notes. What happened this date in baseball history? And we have fun with that. Zach Zaidman, again, our third guy, he'll look up um, uh, like a baseball brain teaser, and the audience can play right along with us. Um, so I don't know. I, I think probably every announcer, every, every baseball announcer, whether you've covered a lot of good teams or bad teams, you're going to have bad games. Uh, even the best teams get blown out occasionally. But you're right. The bad teams get blown out all the time, so you get more practice in, in knowing how to handle these lopsided games. And I, I think possibly, yeah, I would say possibly because I did cover so many lackluster teams that, that I, I got a lot of experience in knowing how to handle it. And um, you, another thing people don't realize is there's no script. You're not reading these broadcasts. You are, you're just there. There's no safety net. Uh, you have no idea how the game is going to go, so you don't know what you're going to say. <clears throat> um, you just kind of let her go, and you have fun. You hope you have a good partner. You hope you have nice, fast games, but I'll tell you, that's made it more difficult in recent times. These lengthy, and I mean nine-inning games that are going four hours, four hours and 20 minutes, it's unbelievable. So it's it's not an easy job, and I, I, I don't – I, I – uh, I think that it's it's a great job. It's uh, exhilarating, but I would never say that what I do is an easy job. And I would say not for me, at least. I can't speak for, you know, Vin Scully or Harry Carey when he was alive. I can't speak for anybody else. But I know for me, it's not an easy job. So you have a side project, BaseballVoices.com, where you put together tribute uh, CDs of 
legendary broadcasters, and you just did one for Bob Costas recently. Uh, I had Bob Costas on this podcast for an hour a little over a year ago, and I was just trying to do a little bit of research into how that came about, and it said that there was a moment when you were re-listening to Jack Buck's call of the Ozzie Smith home run, and that kind of helped spearhead the idea of what you were doing. Can you take us through that moment in time, and what about that call led to you wanting to start uh, a side project when you're already a very busy human? Well, it's an off-season thing. Um, and, and yes, when, when my daughters were younger, I would coach their basketball teams in the off-season. Uh, I looked forward to it, but then they got uh, big enough, and uh, they no longer played basketball, so I was out of a job. And I needed something. I, I used to cover college basketball and traveled in snow and rain and horrible conditions. And I, I got tired of that. I still love the game. <clears throat> but um, I figured doing, doing baseball and traveling for about seven to eight months a year, that's enough. So I, yeah, that's an off-season job. And, and baseball voices, uh, these are simply uh, audio tributes uh, commemorative audio tributes to baseball's greatest announcers. But um, I, I think, Logan, you and your business and anybody in the media, we are given books, free, free books, free DVDs and CDs, because these people want us to discuss these things on the air, and they don't have to pay for advertising. Um, so we, as a result, you get all kinds of freebies. And it's great, you know, but you can't uh, talk about all of them. Um, but I would get these things. I would get these audios and these, these videos. Uh, I would get these tributes sometimes to baseball announcers. And I thought, well, this is okay, but this guy is not an announcer. This producer, the guy who put it together, he really doesn't know what he's talking about here. And I thought, you know, maybe I could try to do it and just see how it would go. I'm sure it's more difficult than it seems. And it is. But I was listening to the Jack Buck call of Ozzie Smith. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. The Cardinals win the game on the home run by the Wizard, or whatever it was he said. <clears throat> and I thought, that is such a great call. It's one of my all-time favorite local broadcast radio home run calls ever. It's right up there with, um, with Russ Hodges and the Giants win the pennant. And there, there might be two or three others, but those are right there at the top of my list. And then I started thinking, well, I know Jack Buck. I mean, he's right in the booth next to us when the Cubs play the Cardinals. Um, let me see if I could just write a track, one track, and I'm going to write it about the home run by Ozzie Smith. Uh, and so I did it, and then I thought, okay, well, there's one track. It was about five minutes long. What else can I do? Well, he also made a great home run call, Kurt Gibson in the 1988 World Series. I don't believe what I just saw. So I thought, there's another track. And I wrote, and I pointed out that uh, Vin Scully was on television, and Jack Buck was on radio, and they both made great calls, and, um, and it was a great call. And then I started researching and trying to find as much audio as I could about Jack Buck. I found a couple of Super Bowl plays uh, of his football play-by-play, I found him doing a, a Missouri Tiger uh, broadcast. I found him doing a little hockey work. I found him doing some after-dinner speeches. He was a great, hilarious speaker uh, at banquets and, and the like. 
So we put together some tracks on those. I found his Hall of Fame speech. There's another track. I found his younger days and how he, you know, got started and where he grew up and what his dad did and where they lived. So you you just kind of start building this thing. And I, I really gain more appreciation for people who write, uh, people who write books and people who produce things because I used to think, Logan, when I would read a book, I thought this author is so smart. He knew all about this topic before he even started writing. That's not the case. I'll tell you what happens. You start doing research and you gain all of these layers of extra knowledge that you never knew before you started the research. And so as a result, then the final product is, is full. It's got all kinds of body to it. It's got some nuances. It's got history. It's got details. And um, these things are a challenge. These uh, baseball voices, uh, and by the way, they're available at baseballvoices.com. But uh, the Bob Costas piece, for example, <clears throat> that was a two-CD set. Uh, it's about 150 minutes worth of, of programming, but it's got so much because Bob has had an incredible career. And when you think about the areas in which Bob Costas excels, not just play-by-play, -play, but there's studio hosting, there's interviewing, there is uh, eulogies he's delivered. He's a great storyteller. Um, he had a show called Costas Coast to Coast. It was a radio show that ran for about 11 or 12 years back in the 80s and 90s. And he had a guest on, and it was so cool because it was a two-hour format, and he could really develop topics, unlike when he's on television where he's limited to two or three minutes and you have to get to a commercial or you have to get to this or that. And, and Costas, when he's able to stretch out and develop topics, is absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, I've got him talking to people like Red Barber, A. Bartlett Giamatti, uh, Chuck Thompson, um, Kurt Gowdy, Tim McCarver, Harry Carey, Ralph Kiner. Um, so, I mean, that, that's what the thing is about. It's, it's about researching and, and finding out as much as you can about these guys, trying to put as many tracks together, always include humor and funny stories. Because I like to laugh and I like to you know, trying to make other people laugh. So I, I always include that. Um, but there's play-by-play -play for Costas of doing World Series games, All-Star games. Uh, he, he did the play-by-play -play of the famous Sandberg game where Ryan Sandberg had two homers in one game against Bruce Souter. And so certainly that's, that's a track. But um, these are a challenge. But it, it really started, though, getting back to my statement about five minutes ago, Logan, it started because I received all of these uh, CDs and DVDs, and I realized there had never been a guy who was an actual broadcaster who's ever tried to produce these things. And so I, I thought I would do it, and now I've done 17 of these. Who's next? Well, uh, I'm not sure. <clears throat> I'm not sure. If, if this program really goes well, maybe you. <laughs> Somehow I doubt it. Uh, one of the things <laughs> you, you touched on that I want to unpack a little bit more you talked about wanting to laugh and always looking for funny stories. And you've had the good fortune to work with a couple of the funniest people in the broadcasting industry in Bob Euchre and Ron Santo. And in very different ways, I've talked to broadcasters who have talked to both of them. Uh, just give us a story about working with each of them. 
Well, uh, Euchre was uh, obviously a, a professional stand-up comedian and uh, brilliant uh, comedic mind. But what Bob tried to do <clears throat> at the end of every broadcast, I was doing uh, the number two radio Milwaukee play-by-play job, and he was number one and still is, going on 50 years. Um, but what he would like to do, at the end of the ninth inning, he would pack up his briefcase and he would... Uh, start to walk out the door, and I would begin the post-game show, and I'm giving scores from around the league, and the Tigers beat the Yankees tonight 8-5, to and uh, it was Baltimore over Kansas City 4-3, to and I would give the winning and losing pitchers, and then I would st- start doing the, the rundown and the highlights of our game. Uh, Milwaukee just played uh, whomever, you know, Cleveland. <clears throat> and before Euchre would leave the booth, it, it got to be a running gag. His goal was to try to get me to laugh out loud right in the middle of my post-game show. And I mean, he would do anything to make me laugh. It was hysterical. He would, he would make a sound like a, a wounded seal or, or a, a dog barking or animal sounds. He would use props. He would use uh, pretzels. Sometimes he would, he would go, pat, and I, w- I would have to look at him. And he would have pretzels in both of his nostrils or, or sticking out of both of his ears. Uh, he would have hot dogs and he would have cups of coffee uh, to use as props. He tried to get me to laugh. Uh, sometimes I would not laugh, but it was very difficult not to. So that was, that was Euchre, and it was like a running gag for years and years with, with, with him. Um, Santo, I always like to talk about the... Um, the experience at Shea Stadium, <clears throat> it was uh, the 2003 season, a cold April night, and we had one of those old-fashioned electric heaters that glowed a bright orange over your head when you turned it on. So the anthem singer gets up, Ron Santo stands up, and he gets too close to the heater. And all of a sudden, I, I smell something burning. I hear something sizzling like bacon on a stove. I look over and Ron Santo's hairpiece is on fire. There is a little blue flame shooting out the top of his head, smoke everywhere. <clears throat> so I did what any good partner would have done, Logan. I grabbed a glass of water and I splashed it on his head and put out the fire. Now, Ron was a very handsome man, very vain about his appearance, actually. His first thought was, how does it look? <laughs> How does it look? I, I almost laughed right in his face because it looked like Tiger Woods had taken a pitching wedge and whacked one right off the top of his <laughs> noggin. There was a divot in the top of Ron Santo's head after his hairpiece had been on fire. Um, but anyway, we had a lot of laughs about that, and we always thought it was funny later on. The name of the Mets pitcher, starting pitcher that night, was Al Leiter. <laughs> But I, I also worked with Al McGuire, <clears throat> and, and Al was, uh, he, he was he was one of those guys. I, I worked in the last several years of his life, um, but he, he, was, he was absolutely great. For one thing, I never had one bad moment around him, not one. And he always made you laugh. He was bizarre, uh, but he loved the game, and he taught me a lot about basketball. Um, but anyway, we're doing a game at Louisville, Freedom Hall, Louisville, Kentucky, one of my favorite venues. It's a Saturday afternoon game, Marquette against Louisville. 
The game is over about 3 in the afternoon. So I said, Al, let's go ahead and get a cab and head to the airport. He says, no, Pat, we don't have to get a cab. We'll hitchhike. Somebody will recognize me and we'll save the taxi fare. I thought, hitchhike? I've never (laughs) hitchhiked in my life. The next thing I know, I'm standing by the side of the road with my thumb out, hitchhiking with Al McGuire. And sure enough, just as he predicted, like the second vehicle, it was a couple of young guys in a van. They recognize Al. They roll down the window. Hey, Al, do you need a ride? Al says, yeah, me and my buddy here are going to the airport. Can you help us out? Yeah, get in. The next thing I know, I'm in the back seat of a total stranger's vehicle, and I'm listening to Al McGuire tell these guys stories about getting technical fouls, winning the NCAA championship, coaching against John Wooden, uh, whatever. And the whole thing is just surreal. And you know to this day that those two kids in that van that day, they are still telling that story every year at Thanksgiving or Christmas or maybe both. Um, anyway, we get to the airport, and I'm just kind of, I'm just in amazement listening to Al. And we get out, and I said to Al, I said, you're probably still going to turn this in for expenses on your taxi, aren't you? He says, no, I got enough big scams going. I don't cheat the small stuff. <laughs> but he was, he was a beautiful, beautiful man, just beautiful. I, I loved him, and uh, we had so much fun. And um, I, like I said, I learned a lot. And, and I also worked with Harry Carey. Now, Harry Carey was around for the last two years of his life uh, when I got to Chicago. So Harry, another beauty, he would uh, love to go to the ballpark so much that on a Saturday when he was preempted, when network television was there, that meant Harry had the day off and could have stayed home. But he loved coming out to the park so much. I tell people for Harry Carey, baseball to him was like food and water to most human beings. He needed it to stay alive. So he would come out and he would sit. Harry was an old radio man, of course, from the Cardinals. He would sit between Ron Santo and me, and he would spend not just an inning. He would spend the whole nine innings there. And I said, Harry, you got to do some play-by-play. Are you sure? Are you sure I'm taking away some of your... I said, Harry, trust me, I need a break. Do some play-by-play. We'll have fun. So he, he would be there. And um, I, I learned a lot from Harry, too. Um, funny. He was crazy. But uh, he was really, really nice to me. And, uh, and I'll always have a good spot in my heart for him. But I, you're right, Logan. I've, I've been so lucky to to work. And now with Ron Coomer. I mean, Ron Coomer has a tremendous sense of humor. And he and I have done six years on, on Cubs radio. And uh, Zach Zaidman's our third guy. But Ron has a great, uh, great wit about him. And we laugh every day. And, and I think, um, you know, Ronnie is so down to earth. And he's a Chicago guy and a former big league player and played in the Twin Cities. And, um, so I'm, I mean, I've, I've really been very lucky with partners, and, and we, I think that uh, I tell people, I say, you know, there's probably a lot of people, I know there are, a lot of people um, that have made a lot more money than I have, but I, I can't imagine too many people who've had more fun doing their jobs than I have over the last four decades. 
I want to dive a little bit more into working with different analysts because you talked about uh, all of the people that you've worked with, all of them with huge personalities, but it takes a different kind of skill to be able to get that personality from that analyst and get it on the air without getting in the way and knowing when to basically as the play-by-play guy shut up and let the analyst take over. Was it ever difficult to build chemistry with any of those people? Did you have to do anything different? How did you go about that, or were you just fortunate that you had great analysts? Well, as far as analysts, uh, Bob Euchre was a play-by-play guy, not an analyst. Uh, he did an analyst on network television, but on local radio, Bob was, is, was and is still the number one radio man. So he did not really, I didn't have to, you know, bring him into the conversation. He was there, and, and he was a dominant uh, uh presence so um and and here's another thought logan i i think that when you do share a booth with a guy like euchre and then you share a booth with a guy like santo you can make a case that those two guys are two of the most famous sports personalities in the history of milwaukee and chicago respectively so when you do work with somebody like that you know going in that you're not going to be the main guy so so don't even don't even worry about that just put that out of your head you're going to be the number two guy. You're going to be the second most uh, well-known guy and just learn to live with that because that's the way it is. And I was fine with that. I was absolutely fine in both cases to be the, the so-called second banana because it's still a very good way to go through life and it's a good living. And, um, you know, eventually you get to be more of a uh, presence, if that's the word, uh, as your career goes on. But I, I was very happy. And people say to this day, they say, Geez, Pat, you're still very humble. I said, well, that was my training. You you learn to be, I think the word is uh, sublimate. Um, some broadcaster, might have been Ernie Harwell, might have been somebody else, but they told me early in my career, as the number two guy, you have to sublimate yourself. And I looked that word up uh, in the dictionary. It means basically to tone yourself down so as to fit in more socially acceptably if that makes sense. I think it does. Uh, but that's what I had to do with Euchre, and that's what I had to do with Sato. Um, but as far as um, chemistry, it's not something that happens immediately. Um, you're, you, you both have to work at it. You both have to give the other guy the room to do their thing, and then you hope that it meshes together in a pleasant blend. Um, but you have to think about it. I, I tell people that when you work in a two-man booth like ours, it's almost like a marriage um, because whatever you do or say, you have to think, how is this going to affect the other person, which is what married people do every day of their lives. Uh, how is this going to affect him if I do this or if I say that? Um, I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to make him feel awkward. I do want him to feel good. I want him to have fun. I want him to laugh. I want to laugh myself. Um, so, I mean, those are just some of the things. And, and the chemistry that, that any two people have, uh, that never happens immediately. You're lucky if it um, just keeps on getting better and better and the audience enjoys listening to what you and your partner do all the time. So at some point, you don't analyze it. You just keep it going. And that's kind of where I am with Coomer, and that's where I was with Santo and and that's where I was with Al McGuire. You just keep it going because it's fun. 
So don't uh, don't paralyze it with uh, overanalyzation. In 2016, the Cubs won the World Series for the first time since like 1908, when they didn't even have radio. And you were the first person to get to call a Cubs championship game on the radio. What did you go into that game thinking? Did you go into any planning on what you wanted that final call to sound like? Not word for word, but maybe more thematically, if that makes sense? Well, I I mean, yes, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about it. I think that uh, in a case like that, it's part of your pregame preparation to to think about it. You don't ever want to plan out anything word for word. That's that's never a good plan for a live play-by-play man. Uh, I, I bring up two different scenarios here, Logan. Um, if, if a person was to plan out something to say in a moment like that, let, let, here are two different endings to a baseball game. A baseball game can end in, in any number of ways. But let's say it was 11 to nothing Cubs in game seven, okay? And you've planned out something real dramatic and real eloquent and real fancy. It may not fit in an 11 to nothing final. Um, or if you plan out something in a cliffhanger like the game we had, uh, it might not sound appropriate either because uh, the, the Cubs were just hanging on for dear life in game seven. It was the bottom of the 10th inning. You had a guy on base. You had the potential winning run at the plate. I mean, that's about as, that's about as dramatic as you can get. So I, I didn't want to you know, plan out some real fancy, flowery uh, statement that just may not fit. What I did want to do and I, I was concentrating on saying, stay under control. You don't want to be hysterical. People are going to listen to this call for the next century uh, with any luck. And I want it to be good. I want it to be understood. I want it to be clear. Um, I do want to say the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. But before that, I want to be true to the final play. And if there's anything that I was proud about of the final call, it is that I actually said, bounced slowly to Bryant. So I was still concentrating on, on the training of being a radio play-by-play man and, and describing the final play. And I was very proud. I didn't even realize it because that's how uh, intensely I was concentrating at that moment. But I actually said, you know, bounce slowly toward third. Bryant will glove it and throw it to Rizzo. And I'm, I'm still remembering now as I'm talking about this, I wanted to make sure that it was in time that the game was over before I did anything else. So I waited, and it was a high throw, but Rizzo reached up, pulled it down, and I said, it's in time. And I saw Joe West, the umpire, pump him out, and then I said, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series, and then it was just bedlam. I watched the Cubs. Uh, I said uh, something like they're, they're pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds, um, and I said the longest drought in the history of American sports is over, and the celebration begins. So I did not script it out. Um, it's not the greatest call that's ever been made, but I did what I wanted to do, which was stay under control. I was clear. I was not hysterical, and I was true to the radio audience for the for the final call. So that's the way I approached it. If you had had that moment in 1996 instead of 2016, do you think you could have stayed under control the same way? Probably not. 
And that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, uh, but no, I had a lot of experience and, um, you know, I had, I would, I had hoped for a moment like that. And then now that it's three years behind us, you start appreciating it, appreciating it even more knowing that, uh, you're going to try to get there as a, as an organization every single year. But realistically, that might be the only one of my entire career. So, uh, if that's it, then I can live with what I did. As a play-by-play broadcaster, hitting those big moments in the right way is is so important and so difficult to do. Did you have what did you specifically work on and train yourself on to be able to have the voice control that you mentioned for that exact moment? Well, um, it's the same as doing uh, any game. <clears throat> All year, um, again, you're concentrating, you're watching it, you're putting uh, your words together in your mind as you watch it, you're hoping that the words tumble out in the right order, and you hope that they make sense, and you hope that it's uh, dramatic. Um, but again, I've heard, I've heard some really good announcers get way too excited, and, and you end up not being able to hear what they're saying, and their voice cracks, and... And I thought, I don't want that to happen. So you just try to stay under control. There's a certain level that you know where your voice starts to get shaky, and you just want to stay below that level. So I guess that's the best way to answer that. And as far as voice, you had a little bit of a scare with your voice. I believe it was 2014 where you had a a non-cancerous lesion or pre-cancerous lesion on your vocal cord and had to have surgery to get that removed. What went through your mind when you got that diagnosis? Well, I thought this could be it. I may never broadcast another game. Um, And actually, Logan, to follow up, I've had four different surgeries on my vocal cords, um, and uh, they've all gone well. I have a great surgeon, Dr. Aaron Friedman, and uh, he knows what he's doing. Um, but it's scary. Every time you go in, you think, what if there's a mistake? What if they cut too much? I have a, it's a disease that I have. It's called dys- dysplasia. And uh, what it is, it's a precancerous growth on your vocal cords. It affects only about 10,000 people in the world at any one time. Um, Roger Daltrey, the great lead singer for The Who, had it. Dick Vitale had it. Uh, the basketball announcer, and and I've had it. So um, it's not common at all. Uh, It can kill you if you don't get it taken care of, and you know when it's coming on because your voice starts getting real scratchy. So I have to go in. In fact, I have an appointment next week to go in, and the doctor will look at it and see if I'm ready for another uh, 162-game season. And your surgeon isn't a Cubs fan, if I read correctly, and you were happy about that. Tell us that story. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to go in and, and talk ball, and I didn't want him to feel extra pressure. And No, he, he's so professional. He, he's, uh, he's just a great surgeon. And sometimes you look at a guy and you think, that guy knows what he's doing. And then he starts talking, and you think even more, he really knows what he's doing. And I had that feeling with Aaron. How have you changed the way that you take care of your voice and your tool since then? Well, I I used to like to have a beer and maybe a little brandy in the off-season. I've never been a big drinker, but I remember right before the first surgery, and this was literally 
as we say that, this is the day after Christmas, it was five years ago today that I had the surgery. It was because we went in and he said, we got to get that taken care of. Um, so I said, uh, Doc, I'd like to have a beer or two. Is it okay in, in a day or two? Can I, can I have a beer? He says, you can, but it'll slow, it'll slow down the um, recovery process, I think is the way he put it. So I said, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. And sure enough, I have not had even a single beer in five years. No, no booze whatsoever. Not bragging. I'm just saying that uh, he said it might slow down the recovery. Well, that was good enough for me. I want to keep broadcasting, and my family uh, can use that for the next you know, few years. So um, that's one way. I, I've never, well, I, I can't say never, but I have not smoked since oh, the 1980s. So I'm no smoking, no drinking. Um, I get my rest. I drink a lot of water. Those are just a lot of common sense stuff. You know, don't eat too many spicy foods. You're taking away everything that I love about <laughs> about uh, eating and drinking. But um, one of the things that I just found in my research that's kind of silly, and I just have a couple more questions before I get you on your way. But I thought it was really interesting that you were introduced to Throat Coat Tea, not by another broadcaster, but by the lead singer of Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder. Tell us how Eddie that happened. He's a great guy. He and Ron Coomer are good friends. They text each other during games. Uh, Eddie's been in our booth any number of times, and uh, he's actually a good friend. He listens all the time. He, he'll send a text, and um, we were talking about Bruce Springsteen uh, in, on a broadcast, and um, because Coomer said he heard that a certain pitcher was a big fan of Bruce Springsteen, and I said, well, let's see if maybe he can throw that speedball by him. And Eddie immediately sent a text and said, nice speedball reference. You know, he, he <laughs> so he, uh, he's a great guy. But, yeah, Eddie always uh, drinks throat coat tea before he goes on stage with Pearl Jam. And uh, I thought if it's good enough for Eddie Vedder, it's good enough for me. And sure enough, I drink um, throat coat before every single Cubs game. How many people call you by your real first name? Um, a few friends, um, very few, uh, Virgil Patrick Hughes. It was my dad's name and it's an odd spelling V E R G I L. Uh, he was uh, given that by his father and, um, I'm not a, uh, Virgil Patrick Hughes, the second, but my dad uh, gave me that. And, um, uh, I, that's why I go by Pat. <laughs> Do you have one of your own bobbleheads that they gave away? Do I have them? Yeah, I've got them. Would you like to buy one, Logan? I'll give you a discount. <laughs> I, I might buy one of your CDs. I don't know if I'm going to buy the bobblehead. But what's it like having your own bobblehead? Is it weird? Was it surprising? What was it like in the <clears throat> moment where you found out that that was happening? Well, i tell you what. I, I didn't take it seriously. I thought it was funny. I was flattered, kind of. Um, I didn't take it like I said, very seriously at all until uh, they did a little marketing and I got calls from reporters and they said, Hey, um, we understand you have a bobblehead out. And I said, yeah, these guys up in Milwaukee, the, uh, I think it's the national bobblehead hall of fame and museum. Uh, Phil Sklar, I believe is his name. Great guy. Um, I did take it seriously the first day they went on sale and they told me that they sold them out. <laughs> They had 
because it was 2016, that's the number of uh, bobbleheads in the first edition. I was wearing a blue shirt, and I got a call at about six o'clock at night, and they said, "Pat, you're," and and I I'm the the deal that I struck uh, was was very naive. I had no idea it was going to be that popular. So I, I pretty much, it was during the season, I said, yeah, whatever, just pay me whatever you think is fair and we'll go from there. Um, but the first day they sold all 2016. Um, and then I took it a little more seriously. <laughs> so then they came out with a red shirt version. And I think that's almost sold out. And now there's a black shirt, uh, the black shirt being the one that's a replica of the shirt that I wore during Game 7 of the World Series. So it's it's been a good thing. It's been fun. People seem to like it. And, um, yeah, that's that's available at BaseballVoices.com as well. I just looked them up on Google, and it says that the blue shirt ones are going for about 100 bucks a pop, and the other two just 45 So I guess uh, the blue ones are the ones in high demand. Well, like I said, that was the first day. Um, they only... That's kind of a marketing idea where you, you, you only print or you only produce a certain number, which does increase the value if they're popular. You've won a lot of awards in your career. You've been the state uh, broadcaster of the year 12 times. You're in the Irish American Hall of Fame, and you were a finalist for the 2016 Ford Frick Award to get into the Hall of Fame. Obviously, nobody does this for awards, but what is the most meaningful one that you've gotten. Well, I, also, Logan, not to um, you know be boastful or anything, but just uh, a few weeks ago, I was a finalist for this year's uh, Ford C. Frick Award. I did not did not uh, get the the victory, as they say, but I was very flattered to be one of the finalists for the second time. And maybe my day will come, and maybe it won't. I don't need that to to feel like I've had a successful career. I know I've had a successful career. I'm going to keep it going for a while. I like the awards. I don't really think about them too much. Um, but, yes, I think it's it's really cool to tell your mom or your wife or your daughters or your best friends. They think it's a lot cooler, I believe, than I do. Um, but uh, the Irish-American Hall of Fame, that came out of nowhere. There was a nice event in New York City when the Cubs were <clears throat> in town playing the Mets. And I looked at some of the past winners, and you know, Vin Scully and Tim McCarver, and there was a whole bunch of uh, recognizable names up there. And I, I, I was asking the guy there. I said, "Would you mind if I you know, change my name to Pat Sullivan because I, I really would like to be pictured right next to Vin Scully?" <laughs> and um, he didn't buy it, and he said, "No, can't do that." <laughs> but anyway, that was a cool thing. Um, the state broadcaster of the year, the uh, sportscaster of the year, those, those are fun. I, I, I can't deny that. It was really exciting to win it the first time. It's almost like becoming a father. The first one is so special, but you, you love all the other ones just as much. <laughs> okay, so I have two last questions that I ask everybody. And the first one is, what are your broadcast horror stories? And when I say that, uh, the time when you were in a really odd vantage point that was impossible to see the scoreboard or uh, every piece of equipment malfunctioned on the same day, uh, stuff that happens that you can laugh at now that maybe mortified you in the moment as a broadcaster. 
I would say the cable car classic in Santa Clara, California. This was uh, ESPN television. I was 24 years old, 1979. <clears throat> and this was in the the embryonic days of ESPN. They had just gone on the air uh, that autumn, I believe. So now I'm in my hometown of San Jose. Santa Clara is right next door. Uh, the cable car classic, San Jose State's playing uh, Virginia. Ralph Sampson was uh, on the team. But the, what I do remember was I'm all prepared to go. I got all the notes in front of me. I'm scared to death. I'm 24. I'm doing a national television game on ESPN, and I know that it could be a huge thing for my career if it goes well, and it probably could be a disaster if it doesn't go well. So now for the opening starting lineups, somebody had the clever idea to turn all the lights out in the arena, all right? And they're, all of my notes are right there. I can't see them. It's, it's completely dark. I'm on the air live, and fortunately... I had done enough research. I was prepared enough to just kind of keep it real generic. I couldn't see a darn thing, but that was a little bit hectic. Um, I look back at it now and say, you know, you handled it pretty well, but it was not ideal. Um, th there are always going to be things you regret. Uh, I've never really said anything horribly profane on a, on a broadcast, and I don't plan to. Um, but I, I don't know. It's, I think every single day has its element of, of, of being terrified, just knowing the size of your audience and knowing that it's live and knowing that you have no script, you have no idea what you're going to say, like I mentioned earlier. So I, it's, I respect that part of it enough to the point where you really concentrate. It's, um, even though we're having fun and we're laughing and we're joking, you're all doing it within the confines of a professional broadcast. And um, if that makes sense, it does to me, but it probably does not to anybody else. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to and just enjoy a game on a day off where you're listening to somebody, uh, both on a national level and maybe an under-the-radar person in your area in Chicago? Well, let's see. I, I think that there are an awful lot of um, uh, great guys out there. I think any any big league announcer is going to be pretty darn good. I think Bob Costas is in a class by himself um, just because of the versatility. And uh, the CD that I put together on him is called Bob Costas, All-Star at Every Position. And I think that that's true. He, he does so many things well. Uh, so he would be a, a Vin Scully. Um, Bill King, the great, uh, late great voice of the Raiders and the, and the Warriors, and listen to him all the time. Um, I think those are the three grand masters of, of sports casting, Bob Costas, Ben Scully, and Bill King. But I think there are a lot of, a lot of great guys out there. I think they're the, um, like an under-the-radar guy would be Bob Carpenter, uh, the great uh, television announcer for the Washington Nationals. Uh, he's done... ESPN football and basketball. He's just a great, great play-by-play -play man. Um, I, I don't know. I, again, I think I, I don't listen to a lot of other guys because, as I said earlier, you're doing a game yourself every day, 
you're preparing for a game, you're uh, performing, you're traveling, you don't really have time. And when you do have time, you mentioned on a day off, one of the last things I would ever do on a day off is, is flip on a ball game. I'll, I'll be very honest. I, I, I would not do that. It's like, does a secretary go home and type at night? No. Once you get away, you kind of, you know, I like to, I like to leave the game at the park. Uh, I like to uh, enjoy time with my wife and uh, music and movies and um, relaxing and resting. And, and that way I can come back fresh the next day, if oh. that makes sense. All right. Well, we will wrap things up. You promised me 30 minutes and we're almost at an hour. I'm enormously appreciative, but I want to get you uh, back to your wife and your family to watch movies or listen to music or whatever you want to do on the day after Christmas besides talk to some guy in Minnesota. So Pat Hughes, the voice of the Chicago Cubs, thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Sounds good, Logan. I enjoyed it. You did a very nice job interviewing. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Make sure to check out Pat's website, BaseballVoices.com, to hear his audio tributes to great broadcasters of the past and present. Also, remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, Apple Podcast Reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me to make the show better. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to save the damn score just a little bit more.